When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm sitting there with my laptop, and I'm hovering over the Delete from App Store button. And right above that, it says 86.9 million people. And I remember the questions coming through, how could we fail at such a colossal level? Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. This week, I'm speaking with Mark Champagne, a tech founder who was forced to deal with a very difficult decision. He began his career working in corporate sales for a pharmaceutical company. It was a solid, well-paid job, but... He had an idea for a new app, and he couldn't get it out of his head. Mark Champagne had put much of his career success down to his own mental health practices, and he wanted to share those with the world. In 2016, at the same time that mindfulness apps like Headspace and Calm were becoming increasingly popular, Mark Champagne launched Keo, which rather than concentrating on meditation, focused on the daily practice of journaling. In the space of just a few months, Keo had become a runaway success. The number of users was skyrocketing, but all was not quite as well as it seemed. Financially, things were getting out of hand. Then in 2019, he was faced with a single critical moment. Sitting in front of his computer, he asked himself a very heartbreaking question. Do I hit delete? Mark Champagne, welcome. Thank you so much. So let's just learn a bit more about this app, uh, Keo. What was the idea behind it? What did it actually do? The app came out of probably about an eight or 10 year desire to do my own personal reflection in a different way. As you mentioned, I was in the pharmaceutical career and I was traveling quite a bit and I was always doing this, this, this reflective practice or journaling early in the morning, and I was trying to do it in a digital fashion just because, you know, I didn't want to carry around a ton of different notebooks and whatnot while traveling. And years went by essentially in frustration of just feeling like there had to be a better way to capture these reflective questions that I was pulling out of books and blogs and then eventually podcasts. And, and do that in a seamless way to then reflect on those prompts myself. Because I think, you know, questions or good quality questions hit us all in different, different ways and in different time periods in our life or resonate, you know, based on where we're at in our life. So I was collecting all of these, but it was just a scattered mess all over the place. So the idea for Keo was, well, how can we bring together a system that would save all your questions and also bring in new inspiration from other people that you would recognize, you know, brands like Lego, people like 
um, Adam Grant. Uh, who else did we have in there? We had a whole bunch of different um, experts in different different spaces, and then spark reflection in the app. And that's what Keo was doing. And at the same time, you had the meditation apps like Headspace and Calm that were rolling out, which you know for me was telling me, okay, well, people are ready for some sort of digital guidance. Right. So we'll talk about those other competitor apps in a moment. But just now, you use the word journaling, yeah. which, I mean, it may be a state of my sort of mental health treatment, but I haven't heard of it. So, so what, what is the difference between journaling and, let's say, keeping a diary? That's an interesting perspective. I think I hear journaling more often in North America, to be honest, and then in Europe, I hear diary being used a little bit more often. I think they're the same thing. And I think they both carry the same connotation, which, which is why I started talking about this stuff in the terms of mental fitness. Because when I would talk about journaling or a diary, people would default to, oh, you're speaking about the girl that's 12 years old writing about the boy at school. And you know, I, my reply would be, not that there's anything wrong with that, but no, not at all. I'm talking about massive decisions, life decisions that people are making, whether they're Michelin star chefs, award-winning designers, or New York Times best-selling authors. I'm talking about how they're slowing down, pausing, and reflecting on these these powerful questions. And I, I, do, I just need to ask, why do you need an app to do that? Because I've got Microsoft Word, I can tap in my thoughts, uh, and I can put the date at the top. So what's the difference between that and what you were offering in your app? I think, well, at the time, I think it was just the, you know, the ease of use or the, the flow in the process. So I started out using Microsoft Word as as my journaling uh, practice started. And then I'd have questions that I was pulling up that I'd have pasted into, I think at the time, probably Apple Notes. And then the next morning, I'd, I'd sit down and I'd be pulling up Apple Notes and I'd have my my Word processor open and just copying and pasting things and like thinking there's got to be a more seamless way to do this. And again, seeing how on the meditation front, how they're bringing together guided meditations for that space, there was no one doing that specifically for journaling. Yeah, and and it worked. Uh, So, you know, people did find it easier to use, and you got an enormous number of uh, people using it. But first of all, let me just ask you about the competitors. So what was the difference between what Keo was doing and Headspace and Calm and other ones that were out there? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think Headspace and Calm, I wouldn't necessarily consider them competitors and more so uh, companions in that because most people, when they're meditating, they're they're either doing some sort of journaling before or after. So so they link up really well. And the biggest competitor was Day One, um, which is a journaling app that still exists today. I still use it. They actually were just acquired by the company that owns WordPress. And they provided a really great, digital word processor with everything you would want for journaling from from a, like a tagging perspective and adding photos and things like that. What they didn't have and what we were coming to the market with was the combination of that piece and the content knowledge and, and, and inspiration from other people. So, you know, that's where my personal podcast actually started that I'm still running today. It's rebranded, but that's where the podcast started. I'd interview someone like a Kevin Rose, like a technologist. I'd talk to him about his business and his world, but then I'd ask him for his reflective questions. And those questions that he was thinking about on a consistent basis would find their way into the app 
And then the user on the other side could tap on that and say, oh, I understand, you know, I, I resonate with Kevin Rose's technology world. That question's interesting. I would tap on that and it would fire up a new journal entry. We did that with chefs. We did that with writers. We did that with Olympians. There are all types of different uh, content that was coming in. And, and tell us about the downloads and the, and the users. How many people got this app and were journaling on it? Yeah, it was pretty in, intense. I mean, we created something that personally I was happy with and the team was happy with, obviously. And then I'll never forget, I think it was our first team meeting. There was five or six of, six of us because we were scattered around the world. We all came together in, in Toronto, Canada, and we we're sitting in this boardroom planning out the next steps. We pulled up the, uh, the Apple dashboard and... I think we had launched maybe a week or two uh, prior and, you know, we were getting a bit of traction, but then all of a sudden we saw this giant spike and we had something like 1.2 million app store impressions. And we're like, like, where is this even coming from? We had no idea. I mean, I've been doing, I was doing interviews, but nothing that would think that you would generate that kind of traffic. And it turned out it was from Saudi Arabia out of all places and we were featured as new apps we love on the App Store. And then it just started to snowball. The UK, Canada, US, we had, I, th- I want to say, 100 countries featuring the app on either a new app we love or app of the day, which resulted in, um, at the end, 86.9 million App Store impressions. Just to get that clear, when you say App Store impressions, does that mean nearly 87 million people were actually using your app? No, it means, uh, let's say you're walking in the airport, you see the Time magazine, you turned, you looked at it, that's an impression. Now, the people that went in the store and grabbed the magazine and picked it up and looked at it and used it for a while was around 200,000 people. Okay, and is that a good rate to, to you know, impressions versus users? I mean, it's it, it's good from from... From our experience, we'd, we'd never develop an app. I mean, I, I can't remember the stat now, but I, I want to say that the majority of apps that reach uh, hit the App Store don't even come to 1,000 downloads. Um, what wasn't the greatest was the, you know, the conversion rate of that. So, you know, the number of, of, of eyeballs and then people downloading, but then people sticking around, I think that was the big thing. And, and that's... That's not really um, a surprise to anyone that's working in this space. That's essentially the, the age-old story of you just keep iterating, keep iterating, and working on the flows, making sure people are, are not bouncing off, just like you would on a website. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Let's just talk about the numbers a bit. So 200,000 downloads is you know, no small thing. That would put Keo into the top 3% of downloads on the App Store. So yeah, you're right at the top of the league tables and on track to make a big success. But how did those numbers translate into money? Were people paying to use the app? Yeah, we we had at the time a very typical monetization subscription strategy, essentially where users were paying for premium content. So, you know, we did have paying users, We ha- but the thing is we didn't have enough. We had enough paying users to cover our Amazon server costs. And, you know, what becomes challenging here is that, especially when you have all these people flooding into the app and they're using it for free and they're writing and storing data, that data costs money. So the, the, the split or the ratio was not there to get to a level of profitability. We should say that one of the main issues you were running into was the actual app itself and getting it to work well. So just tell me a bit about that. What, what went into the process 
of building the app? So I, my co-founder was my brother-in-law, Sine, um, who was living in Canada, but he was born and raised in, uh, I shouldn't even say raised, but he was born in India and Dubai, essentially. So he had, and the reason I'm bringing this up, he had connections in, in India. A lot of his family lived there as well. And then there, there were people that introduced us to a development team in India with a project manager out of New York. We knew enough that we had to be careful not to get burned with offshore development teams because we heard all the stories that, you know, a lot of these teams are used with bigger companies like the IBMs of the world to do one feature in an app or something like that, and they can save a lot of money doing that. But when you're starting out and you have no technical expertise, all I could share was the vision and the strategy and the marketing and everything we were doing. You want a team that can take you through, you know, from A to right to the end, essentially. And that team definitely was not the, the team that could do that. So we didn't know. So we, we did our best. We had more confidence because the project manager was in New York, had used the teams, had used that team for other bigger clients and projects. But at the end, we essentially got to the point where every time we, we would report a bug, it felt like another 20 would pop up and that literally we were never going to launch and we actually found someone locally uh, here in Canada in Ottawa. He took the code, which he, he continues to uh, refer to it as spaghetti code uh, to this day, <laughs> which is a mess of code, essentially. He, he strung it together and did his best, and, we're, and we were able to launch. And, you know, even the, the code right to the end needed a whole overhaul, which is not uncommon. I mean, I remember at the very end, I was interviewing someone at LinkedIn and he shared with me, he's like, yeah, we're going through a huge uh, development uh, rewrite right now. And he explained it as it's like we're taking the whole app or the whole company, lifting it up on stilts and gutting the, the basement. So the back end, which is exactly what we needed to do. So that gave a bit of confidence. Here's this billion-dollar company that uh, all, essentially has to do the same thing, but they also had a lot of resources to do that. <laughs> if you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make-or-break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential management of uncertainty, leadership, decisions and actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. Mark Champagne had just completed his first round of in-depth user testing and he was keen to make changes to Keo, but changes cost money. Building a tech company isn't cheap, and for Mark Champagne, that reality was starting to have a serious impact on his personal life. Costs had spiraled from the start. The first set of coders charged around $30,000, and when that didn't work out, he had to get another team, and then another. Soon, the amount he was spending on development had doubled, and Keo's overheads hit six figures. Mark Champagne was worried, and his brother-in-law's company, which had financed Keo, was starting to feel the strain. Propping up the app was one thing, but Mark Champagne realized that it would take a lot more money to take it on to the next level. And even if he did invest more, he couldn't be sure of where the costs would end and where the profits would begin. He had a decision to make. Continue and risk it all, or get out before things got even worse. Tell me about the day you decided to to actually do it, to pull the plug. Well, for I mean, first, 
the the first factor were were the financials, obviously, and that's what that's what brought us to that decision point. You know, linking up with uh, my co-founder and brother-in-law, there was another company involved, his company that we had uh, partnered up together that was a successful uh, IT business uh, running out of uh, Dubai, and that was funding a lot of of Keo essentially. So we were getting to the point, though, where the, the health of that company was now starting to become problematic because of this endeavor. And we had already invested, you know, uh, $50,000 each, essentially, uh, in, out of our own savings. I had left, remember at that time, I was coming out of the pharmaceutical world doing quite well. We, you know, we had a condo in Montreal. We had sold that, moved to Toronto for, to be closer to my co-founder and, and just opportunity in general. Um, we were at the point where we had some private investors out of Dubai and India that were interested, but the terms were very unclear and a bit scary to see where that was going. So we had all this information on the, on the financial side of things that didn't feel very clear, felt like it was just going to be potentially even more of a debt situation, and we didn't know how long it would take. And that that left a huge question on can we financially and can we mentally handle that decision? And for me, and I'll borrow some language from Scott Belsky who I had, from, from Adobe who I had interviewed, he left me with this thought, you know, you have to think if you have as much conviction as you did at the very beginning of the idea when all the excitement's there and you're talking about something new and it's all kind of butterflies and, and rainbows, do you still have that conviction, if not more now, than you did when you started? And if the answer is no, then you should probably stop. And for me, the answer was no, because I had a one-year-old at that time. We had moved to a place that we could essentially not afford. And, you know, it wasn't a, a 22-year-old kind of dorm room kid just working on this on the weekends and with, with no care. I've got a family to provide for. So what did you decide and where were you when you decided it? I'll never forget. I was by myself in Toronto in a co-working space. You know, all these strangers around. There was our, the rest of our team. There was one in Dubai, I think one in the UK, the US, and, and someone else in Canada. I'm sitting there with my laptop. I've got the Apple dashboard open and I'm hovering over the delete from App Store button. And right above that, it says 86.9 million people. And I remember the questions coming through. How could we fail at such a colossal level? What would my family think? What would my ex-colleagues think that, you know, I remember when I'm leaving, because I wasn't leaving in a situation where I hated my job. It was just, you know, I would have regretted not doing this. But I remember there was something in their eyes saying, yeah, I have an idea like that too. Good for you for, you know, having the guts to go do it. And all of that came rushing back. Well, now what would they think? So you pressed... Delete. Delete. What impact did that have on you personally? I remember at that time in my life just feeling physically sick in the morning, just thinking about deleting not just an app and, and, and business, but essentially deleting my identity from the last three years. You know, you get caught up in all the press and the, and the features and, and the, the brand collaborations and all of that, that, you know, I didn't want to talk to any of those people because in, in, in fear of judgment. And it wasn't until 
I think I, I you know, a lot of walks, a lot of just being in the present moment to, to, to pause that narrative and think, well, wait a second, I've interviewed hundreds of exceptional humans and they're asking very different set of questions. They're not asking questions like, why me, why this, and, and digging into the, into the ground. They're asking, what do I want for my life? What's next? You know, what did I learn from this? Now what? And as soon as, as, soon as I flipped the set of questions, then the hope started to come back. Was there anyone in your circle, colleagues, family, who said, don't press delete? <sighs> that is a fantastic question. I, no, you know what, Every, everyone, I mean, I, the reason I hesitated was my partner and brother-in-law, he was a bit, you know, he was a bit hesitant. I think he, he, had, a li- he, was, he had a little bit more uh, hopefulness left in his tank. He didn't say no, but he, sa- he, he was definitely trying to s- slow it down. Like, let's just give it a little bit more thought, or maybe why don't we try one more round or something like that. It would seem to me the obvious thing to do in this situation when you've got s- such a successful app, you've run out of money, basically, would be to raise some money and risk someone else's money, you know, and you'd give up some profit, no doubt, but you would, you know, it's a way of going forward, keeping your sanity and, you know, taking the stress out of it for you in a way because it's not your money. Um, why didn't you do that? Uh, well, I mean, probably the six months before leading up to that decision, I mean, I was trying. But the the context of the market was very different at that time. You know, everyone knows of Calm and Headspace right now, um, but at that time, Calm didn't raise their big round of venture capital valuing me- the meditation space at a billion dollars. Um, and no one was raising money for journaling apps at that time. So the 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 venture capitalists were they were watching i think they were watching companies like headspace and com and seeing their success but they i got the sense they got the they weren't ready yet to just jump into a brand new uh wellness or self-care markets and and coming from two founders that this is their first rodeo in the app space that i mean that's the other thing not to be uh too hard on ourselves but that's the reality of the situation so, so all to say, I mean, we had a few private, like I said, a, pri- a few private investors out of the Middle East that were interested, but not, you know, the, the, the terms were very different. It's, 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 those are more loans, essentially, than, to your point, you know, invest and they're comfortable just losing if it doesn't work out because it's a portfolio thing. So again, I, I just felt like, well, this is just, this is making it even worse. This is fueling you know, putting fuel on the fire, essentially, if if this continues. To, to borrow more money just means you're in a deeper hole in a way, doesn't it? But, yeah. well, there's, there's another aspect of this that I don't know how you manage, because you, you had all these users who were doing their journals. So all these journals were important to them, right? And and they're on your app. So when you press delete, did you end up deleting all their their journals, which must have been quite distressing for them? Yeah, that, that was one of the hardest... Uh, points in that whole, once the decision was made was, what are we going to do with the data on the servers? Because we didn't have in the app at that time, we didn't have any type of export feature available. It was part of that product roadmap. It was coming um, along with a ton of other great features, but we didn't have it at the time. And we, we just, we made the decision that, you know, even though we're, we're drowning here in terms of a financial perspective, We've got to do something, and we I, we looped back in with uh, that one developer uh, that 
always pulled us out of the fire essentially and said, hey, here's a situation. Can we piece together some sort of export feature so that it's not going to be pretty. It's not at all going to be what we you know, plan to do. But at least when that email goes out to the 200,000 people that are using it, and I think at the time too, we had around 15,000 weekly active users. So people, you know, it wasn't just in and out type thing, significant amount of people. Uh, when that email went out, we had some sort of option to, to export their data. Do you think if you had come up with this now, I mean, it seems to me you were almost, well, you're definitely ahead of the game, really, because you were early into this mental health area. And, uh, you know, the investors didn't realize probably what you had. Uh, if you did it now, I imagine you'd be flooded with money uh, if you'd managed to get such a successful thing up and running again. Uh, now people are more aware of how profitable these things can be. So when you look back on it, do you think it was a mistake? Because probably if you had put more money in, you'd, you'd be very rich now. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, at the very end, we, we did have, we had some competitors starting to creep up and, and now those are the ones that are around uh, that have received funding. Uh, Jour is one uh, nice one. Uh, and day one, like I said, was just acquired. And But even them, they they had been around for, I believe, at least five, maybe even eight years before us. Uh, that was the only big one uh, out there. And, and again, like I mentioned before, it wasn't the same setup. Now, though, like with the, with the current apps, there's a lot of options that, that marries up content and, and the actual practice of journaling. So I I, you know what, I've, my gut says, no, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the wrong decision. I, I don't know. I don't know where it would have headed. Um, and I, and I say, I feel comfortable with the decision and that it was the right decision because I'm sitting here talking to you guys and this is what lights me up. It's, I, I mean, I wouldn't be talking about this if it wasn't for that scenario. I wouldn't have written a book that's coming out. I wouldn't have, uh, the a top 50 podcast and health that's out right now. I mean, all of that stuff came and was part of the, the journey. I mean, the app Keo started that, but then all of these other, you know, arms kind of came off of it and continued it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful and happy about where it's going because I feel the most aligned than I've ever have with the, the type of work I'm doing. Right. You could have had all that on a private jet. <laughs> Maybe. Well, oh, and if you're if you're interested, <laughs> I still have all the code and we have all the data. If anyone listening wants to purchase that and integrate it, I mean, we could we could talk. <laughs> Buy a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> exactly. So. I think you have been through a fascinating experience and that must have been an agonizing decision and you, you sound like you're completely comfortable with it. But clearly, you will have learned a lot through this process. And so I'm going to ask you to pass on your thoughts about that. I mean, what lessons have you learned from your decision? Mm -hmm. There were a few things. The, the, the biggest thing, obviously, was uh, ensuring that you're you know, ensuring our business model was really sound. Um, you know, we had people coming in, but people weren't converting to paying users. There was a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, and we needed definitely more clarity on the financials and, and being really, really strict with that. I mean, I'm still recovering from that personally. 
So that was a big one. But, but, but I would say the biggest lesson, the one I think about all the time, uh, including with any project that I'm doing right now, is not to fall for your own hype. And what I mean by that, it's easy to get emotionally sidetracked when you start seeing that you have 60, 70, 80 million app store impressions and all of these downloads and to the point of you're in the, you know, the top 2% of, of downloads or, or, or uh, places to be in terms of, of apps, right, where most people don't get to that. Or you get covered in, in different magazines and you're working with Lego and LinkedIn and Google and whatnot and not think about, well, wait a second, we, we, have, a, we have a massive business model problem that, that we still need to sort out. So I'm not saying don't be excited and grateful, but you know, don't forget about the other side of things and keep w- working on the things that really matter. Another lesson, it seems to me, from what you said is be very careful of outsourcing. It may be cheaper, but it may be more expensive in the long run. Yeah, for sure. And if I could ask you to summarize these thoughts in this form, if, if, if you had to give a single piece of advice to, let's say, a young app developer who's got a very clever idea and, you know, ready to go, what would that piece of advice be? Whether it's an app developer, business, really anyone, to, to be honest, that's working on a big project, slow down and take a minute or two in the morning and ask some serious questions. And I'm talking introspective questions like, what am I pretending not to know? Right? And you can, you can flip that question like that into to really anything. You can, you can flip that into your diet. Am I pretending I'm not eating like garbage on the weekends? Or am I pretending I'm not exercising? Like we make a lot of excuses. But for business, what am I pretending not to know? And on the flip side, you know, taking that time to, to, to gather the data or the internal data, like I like to call it, so that you can make some sound decisions and not be jaded by the emotions that are going to come through the journey, I would suggest everyone to, to finish off on some sort of gratitude practice along the way. And if you, can, if you can do those two things every day, then A, you're learning, and B, you're celebrating the small wins and you're celebrating, you're enjoying the moment. Right? You only get to do that once. I only got to launch that app one time in my life. I'll launch other things, but not that app in that circumstance. So slow down and enjoy it. That's uh, tremendous advice. Uh, thank you very much, Mark Champagne. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi. It was presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Mark Champagne. It was produced by John Joe Devlin with editing by Eli Block. Sound design by Palama Kaufman. The executive producer was Ellie Di Martino, with support from the Open University. <laughs>